Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we also have 24 personalities, but we don't make a meal out of it. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're currently in the final stretch of this fourth series of the podcast where we're looking at teen horror movies in depth, bending the definition of what exactly makes a teen horror film and exploring why teenagers and especially teenage girls make for some of the most compelling protagonists and villains of the genre. First of all, an apology from me. There was no episode last week because I got sick, just the flu, nothing serious, but because of that I quite literally lost my voice so I couldn't speak for days on end and not for more than two minutes without sounding like a croaky chipmunk and obviously because of that I couldn't record anything. And with that said we are back on track and this week are bringing you a discussion of two unconventional horror sequels. The 2013 take on Evil Dead and 2016 Split, which was a true return to form from M. Night Shyamalan. Joining me to go over this double bill of unwell female protagonists is film critic and regular podcast guest Layla Latif. A quick reminder, you can follow The Final Girls on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Girls UK. And if you can spare a few seconds of your day and you enjoy this podcast, please do leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Uh, they really help people discover the show and uh, I really enjoy reading them. If you're new to this podcast, please keep in mind that we talk spoilers from the very beginning. And think about this in particular for Split. So if you haven't seen that one yet there is going to be conversations about the ending pretty much from the start. And with all of that said, please enjoy our takes on Evil Dead and Split. Layla, welcome back. I'm very, I'm very pleased that on the, well, the week that my voice has finally returned after a cold and I can finally record again, uh, we get to do this together and about these, these two batshit crazy movies. We do. And I feel like these two have got like that nice combination of like a bit of like nostalgia for me. Like I feel quite warmly about both of these films. Like this, these are the type of movies I'd watch if I had a cold and had to be in bed. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting that like you even bring up nostalgia because they're from the 2010s already. And we're the nostalgia, the nostalgia cycle is no longer taking 30 years. It's now taking about five because now we feel nostalgic about films that were, you know, made 10 years or so ago or less than. Yeah, I saw someone online talking about like classic movies and they said Iron Man is one of them. And that just made me want to leave wow. this planet. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, it's one of those weird things, nostalgia, because it is nice to kind of come back to things, and especially with something like The Evil Dead, which is in itself referring to something much mm -hmm. older and reminding us of that as well. But like, there is this slightly grotesque way where it can, it almost feels like it's been made into a commodity for a mm -hmm. lot of things. Like with the new Ghostbusters, I just thought that was grotesque. Oh, I honestly, I even avoided watching it because I, I have a finite amount of hours in my life and I do not wish to spend them foolishly. <laughs> so I already had to endure Morbius. I will not be <laughs> doing that to myself again. 
Oh, yeah. And we've got um, Doctor Strange coming up soon. Let's see if uh, they manage to rebound from that, because I am not having a good time with Moon Knight either. I mean, the Marvel machine is just so dominant in culture. It's weird how, like, these sort of mid-budget movies, like, you know, like Split and like The Evil Dead, like, feel really novel watching them now because they do like now everything's been like polarized into either tiny indie or giant mcu absolutely and and it's interesting in the in the last episode i spoke with about um the requel of the town that dreaded sundown which is not a super well-known property so it doesn't necessarily have that nostalgia factor factor to to sell itself on but the evil dead does so I think it's both Split and Evil Dead in diff- very different ways are tapping into that nostalgia factor, which we'll pick about uh, a pick at at the end of the, the conversation, I think. But let's start with The Evil Dead, which which is the 2013 remake slash soft reboot slash sequel to Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. And before we dig into the film, can you summarize this version of Evil Dead for me? Okay, so this Evil Dead is about a woman called Mia, who um, is a a heroin addict, and her kind of semi-estranged brother and a group of friends take her to a cabin in the wood to help her go through um, essentially like a cold turkey withdrawal of a heroin and trying to hopefully stay clean and rebuild her life. Unfortunately, as often happens when teenagers go to a cabin in the woods, uh, somebody finds a cursed book and they read from it, summoning the abomination, I believe it's referred to in this one, uh, which kind of slowly takes over each one of the members and makes them do very, very bad things. So first of all, it has the same name as the Sam Raimi now classic. That's I think that it's fair to call it a classic in its own right. How do those films and this film connect? Because there's no Bruce Campbell, and it should be noted that you know Bruce Campbell being the the heart and the protagonist of the Evil Dead franchise, and also at the same time had Ash versus Evil Dead, the TV show coming out roughly around the same era. But this is an entirely new set of characters. So how does this premise connect to to what we remember of the evil dead well i will slightly correct you that bruce campbell is in this film well <laughs> i was keeping that for later because he's that that stinger makes absolutely no sense but i still it appreciate it <laughs> i just think bruce campbell has got like such a presence that if you can get him even for kind of a tiny mid-credit sequence it's like hard to resist i suppose <laughs> I mean, I almost wanted it to be like a, a life-size portrait of him for no reason, somewhere in the cabin. <laughs> that would have been just a wonderful wink. I mean, I might commission someone to make that just for me, for my own pleasure. I interviewed him in December and like, I don't know, he's he's just got something. He's one of the most charming, eccentric, great guys. I, I so enjoyed talking to him. But um, yeah, so I would say now... With, when it comes to the original Evil Dead trilogy, I watched them wrong and with kind of catastrophic consequences. So I watched two and then I watched three. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I had that kind of DVD box set, which was like a novelty one that had like, you know, that was uh, that looked like the book and yeah. was like really grotesque. Nice. And one night I came out from a, home from a nightclub and I was just like, oh, you know what I'm going to do? It's 1 a.m. Um, I'm by myself. I'm going to finally watch the first Evil Dead, assuming I was going to watch some horror comedy. 
And that's not what the first one is like at all. <laughs> it's fully terrifying. Yes. And I stayed up until dawn, unable to sleep because I was so, so scared. Because, you know, it, it like, and this one is very much like the first one. Mm-hmm. And even speaking to Bruce Campbell, he was just like, I think what you can feel in the first Evil Dead film was this was an absolutely horrific, traumatic shoot for everybody involved. Oh, and they yeah. all had the absolute worst time and they barely escaped with their lives. And I think that there is that kind of darkness in the first Evil Dead film, which you know the subsequent ones don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this to me didn't feel like so huge a departure from that tone, but it is incredibly nasty and brutish. Mm-hmm. And but also, what I like about it is that there's a kind of sense of like the practical even like in like the viscosity of the blood and kind of the way that a lot of um the gore is done you know with nails and broken but like that they it feels very like tangible to me in um in that sort of like 1980s evil dead spirit i think that's very accurate because even the director fede alvarez he he went on record say that they spent to like a lot of time and put a lot of effort and research into making sure that they were doing practical effects and that VFX was only used for touch-ups, I think. So it it does have that very physical feel to it, which obviously looks a lot more slick than the original Evil Dead. But I kind of want to say that your experience of watching them in, in the wrong order for me seems like the right way, because then the the bizarre violence of the first Evil Dead kind of sneaks up on you once you've already made up your mind of what the franchise is. And, you know, we remember it very much as a comedy horror, and that's how people mostly approach it. And then when they find the original Evil Dead, not Evil Dead 2, which is basically the first one with a different tone, it's it's kind of a shock to the system. And I think this one kind of went down completely eviscerated the hor- the comedy aspects of it and just went into deep dark horror yeah and this was a time when a lot of these kind of remakes soft reboots requels whatever you want to call them like and, you know michael bay was doing a lot of them and a lot of them came back with like oh we're gonna do the texas chainsaw massacre but we're gonna just like mm-hmm. have way more like sexual violence and way more like gore and kind of miss basically the entire point of the first film and I don't think this kind of fully falls into that category because the Evil Dead um, was so grotesque. Like mm-hmm. that was kind of the what it was originally. So this doesn't feel like a betrayal to me in the same way that like every Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake has done. Oh my God, there's been some bad ones. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, even the latest one. Well, the latest one is more offensive because it's just mediocre. It's not even bad. But... What do you think are the main points of Evil Dead that this film kind of um, pays homage to or honors in in its own nasty way? I guess that there was just something about like the simplicity of Mm -hmm. Evil Dead, where it's, you know, not bringing in new characters, not bringing in new twists and just kind of like the idea of like an unstoppable force working its way through you like very, very methodically. 
and like it not even being kind of a tangible thing that you can really fight and just like that kind of like that nightmarish simplicity to that which i think in some ways there is in halloween originally mm-hmm. as well about like we're not going to over explain we're not going to even really have like motive we're just going to have something that is unrelenting and it's coming for you do you think it do you think it doesn't over explain because I rewatched the film last night and I kind of, I, the pre- the basic supernatural premise is some random spooky sounding words are read out from the, the book that they find in, in the basement, in the very creepy basement. But here we get a little pre-credits uh, flashback. Uh, we, we get a lot more information about the supernatural elements of it we get a little research montage as well with Lou Taylor Pucci kind of what do you make of how much more time they spend here on the actual supernatural elements of it yeah I wish they kind of hadn't bothered Um, (laughs) (laughs) because you know it's a bit like you know that Rob Zombie remake of Halloween where they had they tried to give Mike Myers a like a really like you know a big backstory and i love that you call him mike myers like you're like you're in diminutive <laughs> terms yeah. and not disparaging the great can- canadian comedic actor mike myers <laughs> sorry I, I don't know him personally mike mr it's, michael myers it's michael to you layla <laughs> <laughs> um yeah like yeah i don't think I, I think that kind of tendency to over explain maybe comes from like a little bit of a place of insecurity like mm-hmm. um as a filmmaker or at least as a viewer it feels insecure like mm-hmm. when there is that you know need to over explain and, and kind of give too much motive even like a little bit with this like i get that um you know you can't just re- redo something shot for shot because that's how you end up with uh, gus van Zandt's psycho but so they bring in this um drug element um, yes. and like the idea of kind of oh you know maybe this is all like a metaphor for kind of the horrors of addiction um which i think sort of works and is absolutely fine but it is a little bit you know when something feels like it's trying to be termed quote unquote elevated horror which yeah. i know is a disgusting term but mm-hmm. you know it is <laughs> it is kind of a distinct subgenre i suppose but i really felt that with them this I felt it worked better, but Antlers did it recently as well. Yeah, where it's just like oh, you know, the real demon is opiates yeah. um, addiction, <laughs> and it's like sure, but um, does it have to be? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. do we have to kind of shove everything up its own ass? It's interesting because I never thought of, I never thought that that was an ambition of this film in particular and even rewatching it like I almost found it very refreshing that it wasn't trying to do that I find mm-hmm. the fact that the and and we we should gonna talk about this I find the purpose of the of being in the cabin like quite an interesting take on the you know young people will go to a random spooky cabin in the woods and then they will inevitably get slaughtered here there's kind of a, a reason for it not just having a fun time but yeah i i really didn't feel like they were trying to shoehorn a metaphor and i actually found that quite refreshing because you're right like sometimes films you can i I always resent 
some quote-unquote elevated horror attempts because I feel like the filmmakers actually disrespect the genre. They don't want to make a horror film. They want to make a film about something else, but they've shoehorned it into a horror film because it's, I don't know, more commercially viable or because of whatever reasons. And that I resent. Um because it's yeah, you see that a lot nowadays. So much, and I think Adler is an ex- is an example of that. I really love the short story that it's based on. That is from a horror writer, but I don't think the director actually really necessarily wanted to make a horror film. But this might just be me projecting it. But that's how it felt. Um, no, I I completely agree with you, and I and, <coughs> sorry, I've got a cup of tea. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, yeah, that source material short is so good, and I was very very excited for Antlers mm. as a result because um, and you know you can just read it online. I think it's just yeah, it's out there sitting there, and it's great um, and such a fantastic ending. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is just I don't know. It's almost sometimes it feels like these people are like embarrassed that they're making a horror film. Yes. in some ways. What's this film? I don't think he feels like. Um, anything but love for this genre and anything totally. but love for the source material. Like you'd really feel that this is someone who absolutely adores evil dead. And, you know, though I don't think this is anywhere near as good as the original. I do think it's a really, really solid little horror film. Um, and, and I uh, got a friend of mine, um, <clears throat> Jamie Graham, who works for total film told me when he interviewed Michael Bay about, the Texas Chainsaw remake that he did, he said to him, like, oh, have you seen the original Texas Chainsaw? Um, yeah, it really doesn't hold up. And that, as wow. a result, you can see why the remake is so crap. Holy shit, the audacity. I know, can you imagine? I can, but I, it's ruined my entire day, this fact. But <laughs> I do agree with you. I think Alvarez really, really loves and respects the the genre. And, you know, when he'd made um, Don't Breathe, uh after after evil dead as well so which is which is a fantastic horror as well but did he make the sequel to that i didn't enjoy this i enjoyed that he one didn't he didn't direct it he um he's a producer and i think he wrote it but he's not a director on it okay we'll forgive him <laughs> but um but i did i did want to talk about kind of the the protagonist especially mia because it's it's kind of the same premise of Evil Dead, you know, just five five young people. I mean, I'm extending the the definition of teenager for the purposes of of extending the cut type of films that I could cover in this season. But um they, they might be teens. I mean yeah, probably nineteen. Generic young adults. Te- like <laughs> te- between teenagers and young adults, they're all twenty seven. Like let's let's face it. So it's fine. Well, it's hard can you say because we we have just been c- trained our entire lives to accept thirty year olds as being teenagers <laughs> in all of the like TV shows and and films that we watch. So like yeah, sure you can bring me some like middle aged guy and tell me he's in high school. I'll believe it. I mean exactly, which is why being an actual teenager when you're trained to perceive teenagers as thirty year olds is so confusing because everybody looks very different and your expectations are all warped. Like I think like I look like a teenager now. <laughs> I was like oh I look just like the protagonist of my favorite teenage movies who are all in their thirties. <laughs> but yeah, what do you make of, of um Mia, who's the reason that this gang kind of um end up in this in this cabin? Which, you know, we're shown that they it's a tradition, like they used to go there quite a lot. Yeah. Um 
I remember when there was kind of this was announced, I was quite cynical about um, Jane Levy being cast as mayor because I knew her from like a not very good sitcom that I watched called Suburbicon uh-huh. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and she was sort of like perfectly fun and snarky and stuff, but she didn't seem to me to be, you know, someone that would could like be the central role in like a kind of iconic horror franchise. Uh-huh. Um, but so I was pleasantly surprised by her. I think Jane Levy does have that sort of classic final girl quality to her. Yeah, that's, you know, slightly sarcastic, witty kind of, but has a sense of like, you know, when push comes to shove, she's got like a lot of internal strength going on. And also like a sense of vulnerability to her. Mm-hmm. Because, and there was one of the things that, um, I believe in the original um, ending, uh, she had, um, uh, she was going to explode. Um, and Sam Raimi came in and said that, like, no, you've got to, you've got to have this character. You know, she's so good. She's so brilliant. And she's suffered enough. Mm-hmm. You cannot then, like, have, you know, end this film with people. Because your audience will just end up being, like, feeling quite angry and betrayed by you. Mm-hmm. And I like that because I always felt with Ash that every time I just wanted him to kind of be able to finally ride off into the sunset and, you know, recover from all of this with the help of like a great therapist and maybe a a supportive friend network. Um, I would love to see Ash goes to therapy. I would, I just want to put it out in the universe. Ash goes to therapy, please. I love this. That would be such a funny like web series oh my god it would be such i mean there is no reason for bruce campbell to host snl right now i mean surely there will be one in the near future but wouldn't that be a great snl skit ash goes to therapy yeah and just seeing this therapist getting like increasingly overwhelmed by what amount of work they're gonna have to do together and then turns out the therapist is a is a dead-eyed perfect (laughs) there we go we need to get in touch with this guy's people. I think he'd do it. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Keep going. Because I can't remember where Ash versus the Evil Dead ends up. But I think he's in space. But I'm sure they could figure out a way to bring him back. Or he, yeah, I think he's, I don't know. I think I if that show I think the best wild. I think the best thing about the Evil Dead universe, though, is that it is wild, which means that anything is possible. Yeah, I mean, that was so, so why Evil Dead 3 is so much fun, because they just (laughs) go for it. Also, like, really appreciate, like, the physicality of, like, Bruce Campbell in these films, like... Oh, 100%. And I think that's something that we do miss here, to a degree. Like, I think he was so, like, he's so athletic and acrobatic in all of the things that he could do, and it's so extreme, um, I follow him on Twitter. He'll occasionally put up like little videos of him and like the special backflips that he does, and um, you know, like the injuries that he sustained when making this films. Because he's very like plugged into his own fandom, hmm. and like I think maybe we we did miss that a little bit here because the physicality here really is just extreme violence, right? And sure. and we should talk about that because like the it dials up the nastiness in a way that is very specific to this era of horror i find mm, yeah no it is it is incredibly brutal and like it sort of it never stops um it never kind of stops twisting the knife like even there's a particular death where um a boyfriend has to kill his girlfriend and he shoots up her one remaining arm yes and then 
just like <laughs> in the final moment, she switches back to herself. So he has to watch her realize that she's shot her and that she's bleeding to death. And that just like is so stunningly cruel. It really is. And also just the all the switching between being possessed and unpossessed doesn't necessarily quite hold up. I think like it's just used for the purposes of inflicting more pain on the characters. Yeah. No, I, I'm very glad that they really didn't end with... They, they do at least let Mia survive because otherwise I think this would have just been too unrelentingly brutal because like the insane the like the absolutely grotesque cutting off of a face or like the amount of suffering that people go through so and and that's that tone is just set in that kind of pre-credit sequence where Mm -hmm. you know of course it's it's not just that it's a young teenage girl it's not just that she's going to be burned at the stake and her father has to kill her you know and then she's killed you know her mother and then it's like you know she has to scream and you know, why does it have to be the dad? Like it's, they just, and I think he says something like, I love you, baby. Yes. Before he shoots her in the head. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So we're just really dialing everything up to 11 here. I mean, that's a little bit of that Raimi humor, but obviously it's not Bruce Campbell delivering that line. So it's not, doesn't land as funny. But um, what do you think of the final standoff between Mia and the abomination? Which is, I think, at some point when I was rewatching this last night, I was like, it's still going. She's still chainsawing through. It's been a full five minutes of this. <laughs> I did think it was really funny how, um, you know, obviously kind of tribute to the first word, we had mm-hmm. someone having to cut off their arm and then they had to do it again. Yeah. Two people had to cut off their arms. I'm just like, guys, we know you watched the first one. We all like that movie. <laughs> they have to double it. Double or nothing. But yeah, I, mean, I think that's probably where Jane Levy really shows why she was chosen for this role. Like, she's so good as the possessed version of herself and as also the sort of, you know, um, innocent woman who's trying to get away from this terrible, terrible abomination. As, as <clears throat> Sorry, I don't know why. I don't know whether it's like a sympathetic cough that I have. I got. think it might be like a psychosomatic sympathetic cough because you hear me coughing and you're like, "Oh no, it's I'm now I've so now developed weird. a husky voice and a cough too." But yeah, I think that final sequence where it is also kind of calling back to the original, where it is uh, Mia versus herself was like a really fun note to end on. Hmm. But I'm curious what you think about the sexual violence tree rape scene. Well, this is the thing that a lot of people bring up about Evil Dead, right? Is the is the tree rape. And I don't... It definitely... It felt as horrific, but it also felt a lot more voyeuristic in a strange way. Like, mm-hmm. they made a whole point of sort of leading up to that scene. And I think because you're watching it kind of knowing... Or at least if you're familiar with the Evil Dead films, you know that scene. And you kind of, when it starts leading up to it, it almost feels like it's setting up weird voyeuristic foreplay for that scene. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that I find weird because it makes it titillating as opposed to upsetting. And the actual scene itself, what I am thankful for is that Jane Levy is fully clothed 
in that scene. So at least that part. But I'm really trying to justify a scene that is just... It feels more like something out of um, a strange, a strange hentai porno than it is from the Evil Dead movie, if I'm honest. Yeah. So I feel like a dull dub the titillating rather than actually make it a horrible supernatural rape scene. And at the same time, I don't think it had the same effect as the one in the Evil Dead had because... Because it's a bit too knowing. And I don't think this is the scene that you need to be knowing and winking with. Yeah. And it's strange. I, I kind of really assumed that it wasn't going to be in this. Um, mm -hmm. Because I read interviews with Sam Raimi and stuff. And he'd spoken about the scene in the original. And that he essentially regretted it. And he was like, oh, you know, I wouldn't do that now. Um, and I know there's stuff on the shoot of that film that is kind of, you know, difficult to hear about someone that I like as much as Sam Raimi um you know mm -hmm. and there's a certain immaturity they were so young when they made that yeah. film so I was quite surprised that kind of given all of that time to reflect um they kind of doubled down on it and I think it's also there is one shot in particular that I find that I think is the one that leans too much into the the porny side um mm. there's literally i think you'll know the one that i mean there's literally just a it's a shot of jane's mia's legs and yeah. the branch sort of entering her and it's kind of framed as though this is how she gets possessed but nobody else gets possessed like that that's not the reason why the whole possession thing is really an excuse and that just felt very much like oh this is this is so much fun for you isn't it just shooting this and remaking this in a really specific way which again yeah. just that knowingness just it's not it's not scary because it's not i don't think the film wants it necessarily to be scary it's meant to be titillating i agree like that it, and it kind of really took me out of it to be honest mm. even watching it now i found myself just kind of like wincing and almost like yeah, almost just kind of uh, feeling like slightly almost embarrassed for them. Because Interesting. I, it, yeah, I, um, because it just sort of showed a like level of like puerile humor, mm -hmm. I suppose, which I just thought, like, guys, you're better than this. And I think you're right. You know, the the legendary filmmaking process behind the Evil Dead is almost. It's like, you know, because they were so young and so inexperienced and made so many mistakes. And and that does excuse them to a degree. And you can see how that was completely different in subsequent efforts. But that's not the same here. This is quite a slick production. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, no film can be about sexual violence or sex or anything like that. Um yeah, you know, and I, I'm a defender of many films that uh, that have it in this. It's just, I suppose, when we talked about like that, this film feels in some ways like a love letter to the original Evil Dead film. It's mm -hmm. when that happens, there's a slight feeling of like, oh well, what did you love about that movie? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's the, you know. I think it's the re of the requel thing. 
Like you can operate in the same universe, so you can essentially remake it, right? But do you have to remake everything? Do you know what I mean? Like there's, you can pick and choose the things that you want to remake and not to. But um, you can, you can. But I mean, overall, I still think it's the this sort of uh, you know early millennium remakes. This is this is amongst the best ones. Yeah, for sure. And it's um I think it does understand what made the original one, the scary one, really work. And I think if it was trying to if it was trying to recreate the comedy aspect of it, I think that's when it would have failed because I don't think you can have Evil Dead as a comedy horror without Bruce Campbell. It's just you you'd have to find someone of equal charm and ability to essentially create a new version of of the ash character but i think it, it was wise of them it's i think it's so hard to do comedy horror well and yeah i don't think this is necessarily the this was necessarily the team for that so i think they did they chose wisely to lean into the the nasty horror elements of it yeah, I literally cannot think of a single person that we could like cast and like that that could do it. Like of this like new generation of mm-hmm. actors trying to like trying to go through like who's on Euphoria, who's on like <laughs> you know who, who are the young generation. You know who you that- know who could do it. I mean, he's not that young now. I think maybe he's aged out of it, but I think Glenn Powell would have made a good Ash. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. He's got that little snarky humor, and also he's got that sort of you know, um quarterback build but he he's got an interesting physicality where he doesn't position himself as a hunk in the same way as bruce campbell kind of never did which is bizarre to me because i'm very attracted to bruce campbell (laughs) i mean i literally bought and read his autobiography if chins could talk that's so delightful he's (laughs) such a renaissance man as well you know he writes political satire no i did not does he really yeah I love him yeah. even more now. <laughs> he'd written a whole book recently that was kind of because he'd been very inspired by like um, what capitalism, how it had broken down because of the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Like he's a very political person. I love this. I love him so, so much. So before we move on into onto Split, is there is there anything you wanted to mention about Evil Dead? Um, only that, like, I believe where there's still talk that we might get a sequel, which would be quite interesting because, like, will if they did do a sequel, will they follow the same pattern of it being a tonal sequel, or you know, or will they mm-hmm. go straight to kind of, um, um, you know, Evil Dead Three, absolutely ins insane kind of <laughs> travels through fantasy sort of thing. I'd be interested to see more of Mia. Like hardcore, um, you know, hardened, one-armed Mia. I'd like to see that. Yeah, oh, I would. I would too. And and you know, Jane Levy's kind of done good other work in the meantime. I mean, yeah, I don't know that I would be interested in necessarily revisiting Evil Dead with this director without her. I think she's mm-hmm. probably the thing that I kind of left most impressed by. Oh, 100% agree. So let's move on to Split, the M. Night Shyamalan film from 2016. Can you summarize the, the premise of the film for me before we dig into it? 
Okay. Um, right. Sorry, let me just get all my character names up. Okay. So we have Anya Taylor-Joy as Casey Cook, who is a kind of young, shy, retiring teenage girl. Um, and um, she is getting a lift home with uh, two friends and their dad when the dad gets mysteriously disappeared. Um, and in his place sits a man called Kevin Wendell Crumb, who has dissociative identity disorder. And he has 23 to 24 different identities all moving around within him. Um, <clears throat> some of them are, you know, nine-year-old boys. Uh, some of them are kind of uh, middle-aged women. Some of them are kind of sexual predators. Uh, so he kidnaps the three girls in, and puts them in a basement, uh, waiting for them to be part of a ceremony in which he will become the beast, the 24th identity, and kind of, you know, get essentially superhuman powers. So... I mean, it's rare that a film can be both camp and so deeply problematic at the same time. Um, so is that rare? I feel like loads of camp stuff is problematic. Uh, I mean, like, uh, like in in two thousand sixteen, <laughs> I'm speaking specifically about like this. This is not the eighties. Like, we should we sure. should know better by this point, but. I want to talk about this film a little bit in the context of Shyamalan's career. So next to The Visit, which is mm -hmm. another very low-budget horror film, this really felt like the quote-unquote return of him because he was very much not in director's jail but not really seen as making good films uh, for a very long time. So where does this film fit into his, into his filmography for you? No, I am actually genuinely an apologist and a fan of his. And I, I am the best type of fan in that, like, if I hear that he has a film coming out and it's not very good, I will not go and see it and pretend it never happened. So <laughs> I have only seen, I, have, I, I know nothing of, like, the Lady in the Water. I have not seen, like, any of those kind of ones just before this. Because I was like, you know what, if I'm going to, like, be, like, a good friend that if you, like, do something embarrassing on... A night out, I will just pretend it never happened, and you can like and never bring it up again. Are you so the person who like goes into his Wikipedia page and just edits out Lady in the Water and that weird app film he made with Avatar Will Smith? One, that was I heard that was not good, but it's also none of my business. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, acknowledge them as canon. <laughs> okay, so do you acknowledge so, the visit and split as canon? Yes, I very much like the visit, and mm -hmm. I really enjoyed Split um, very much. I like Old a lot. Um, I actually probably would even defend the village. I think the village is really mm -hmm. fun. But um, even though I would say that this is not one of his funnier films, um, I always find it insane that he is accused of being like a humorless director because I think he's really, really witty. I think he's really and funny too. I disagree yeah. completely when people say that he's humorless. I find that there's like a lot of sly humor in his stuff. It's just not, that's not the point of any of his movies. Yeah. The, um, I remember when um, uh, Old came out, there was a... a critic i really like called matt solar sites and he said that you know watching old he was just reminded that, like this is a this is filmmaking as an art form 
like the and I and I thought that that was maybe a little bit over the top, but actually watching this, I was like, I completely am feeling what Matt Zollicites felt when he was watching Old, where just like the actual use of the medium is so interestingly done. This the way that he like frames things, the way that the camera moves, the way he just makes like really inobvious choices to kind of like ratchet up tension and like that was so present in just the way that James McAvoy first appears mm-hmm. in the film is like done in kind of on this like the shark from Jaws with like <laughs> holding it back to the last second to make to kind of get every tiny bit of tension mm-hmm. and sinister you know and sinister presence to this guy. Um, I love this film. I really do. And I know that it's problematic and I know that in many ways it's not a masterpiece, but it's just like a reminder of what I want more of. Just like slightly unhinged performances, somebody actually being like a proper filmmaker, like yes. <laughs> like after watching like something like Morbius, which I know we're both still traumatized by, but um, and like that flatness and that lack of ambition and that laziness, like there's just none of that here. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. I think even even at his worst, Shyamalan is a is a proper craftsman. He understands visual language. He understands the language of filmmaking and particularly how tension works and how suspense works and i think you know we will talk in depth i hope about james mcavoy's performance but i want to start with that very first scene which is basically the 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 entry point into these these teenage girls that we're going to spend a lot of time with into casey and their kidnapping and i found it's such an eerie and just perfectly choreographed scene, I find. What do you make of the of that introduction of that setup, essentially? Yeah, that it's it's so restrained, isn't it? And like this, and he's got a lot of faith, I think, in his actors to do a lot. So rather than kind of like having like a moment of violence, just really, you know, instead. Again, I'll bring it back to Jaws, but you know that shot on the beach in Jaws when the um, Brody first realizes that there is a boy being eaten, and they do that. Um, what is it called? Like a where you do a dolly zoom? Is that right? Where you basically move mm-hmm. the camera and zoom out at the same time, and it makes you know to kind of have that moment of just like horrendous realization really hit home. Mm-hmm. No, he doesn't mm-hmm. do that, but like there is something I think of a very similar feeling in just Annie Taylor Joy slowly turning her head to realize that this is different man sat next to her oh god and i love that he just you know he 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 kind of trusts in a in her face to sell the entire thing and it's also this it's just so perfectly summarizes as well how she feels without having to have a massive exposition moment that will come a bit later but you know that she's sort of invisible because she James because James McAvoy doesn't even see her until the car makes a sound. She was always there, but completely sort of not visible to him because she's so good at making herself small in the frame. Yeah, I mean it. it it's very impressive how you, how quickly you sort of understand exactly who she is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just because she is of a type like that, you know, like, oh, okay, she's our protagonist, so she's going to be kind of clever and, you know, maybe a bit, I don't know, feisty or whatever, mm-hmm, you know, what mm-hmm. it is. she's actually something much more like specific than that. And I think you fully get her 
by like minute three. So let's talk about Casey. Kind of who is Casey and how does she, how do we learn more about her? How does she evolve throughout Split? Well, yeah, I mean, it's that, like, it's always obvious that she's someone who has been abused, that she's someone that is, like, working through trauma. Um, and it's sort of when it's revealed what it is that she's been going through with, you know, her uncle and the self-harm that has um, subsequently happened, um, it does, it, it, it doesn't feel like um, a cheap twist. Mm-hmm. I suppose, but I don't. I mean, I put most of that down to the fact that I think Anya Taylor Joy is a very skilled actress, and she doesn't kind of. I don't know that it. It doesn't feel like a kind of two dimensional drama teen. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But what do you make of the way that the? Um, I mean, I think we're we're going to be jumping around the ending quite a bit. There is something that I find, I think this is one of the key problems for me of the film that I didn't think Mm -hmm. of at that time when I first watched it, but the whole idea of her being special because she's traumatized, Mm -hmm. I find very too simplistic and kind of, it really reminded me of that speech that the hound, that Sansa gives in Game of Thrones, which also riled so many people up of, you know, oh, I'm only this strong and capable now because I was subjected to rape and abuse. And I have this vibe of, you can, you can tell a lot of that through, and Shyamalan does, through very economic storytelling and through Anya's performance. But then the whole drilling down into the fact that she's special, she's pure and she's capable because she's traumatized or how the film that calls it quote-unquote broken i find that to be way too simple what do you think interesting oh no i i can completely see that point um i guess the for me because she doesn't kind of like save the day or particularly have any like great strength that comes from being traumatized Mm -hmm. um i don't think that i mean fundamentally she is less brave in many ways than her counterparts. They make escape attempts. They're more proactive. They're <coughs> trying to do stuff. Um, she sort of fails at every turn. So I don't think that there is that whole element of like that her trauma gives her like a superpower, which I agree is like a very difficult conversation that we have to have. Um, and I and I I've seen it in interviews even you know from our colleagues like I I I saw a Alan Cumming interview and he was horrifically abused and mm-hmm. honestly the interview and I think because we have this like this kind of cultural narrative around it was just like oh but do you at least feel that like in being horrifically abused that like benefited you as an artist and like helped your creativity or something and he was just like absolutely not I really wish I hadn't been abused yeah exactly and that's that kind of making that into like i re- i genuinely really love this sort of very grounded superhero world that mm-hmm. Shyamalan kind of built with unbreakable and then split and then glass you know glass we're not going to talk about it too much but you know like it's not the greatest film but the idea of having kind of people who are very regular people who have 
what we understand as superpowers, but without going into either a, a gritty superhero world or purely the MCU. I find really, really rich, really interesting. Mm. But justifying that with, oh, you you have to be traumatized to develop special powers is i find that to be like it's if it wasn't especially because it's casey and because of the how it presents it and because literally the film like undresses her throughout as the film progresses she like we meet her she's like very layered up she's got a ton of t-shirts and different things on and then at the final confrontation with the beast she's she's in a tank top because he's like ripped off and her clothes have come off in different in different points and that how he that's how he sees her self-harm scars and you're like that's there's so many things that are wrong with that like i appreciate this the well not so much subtlety but kind of how the revelation is done and it's not this it's not titillating at all but it's just such a weird weirdly misguided concept Hmm, interesting. I wonder whether I've just kind of got such a kind of good faith interpretation of everything <laughs> that happens that like I, I, I am sort of making excuses for it, but I do still feel that like that Casey is not empowered by her trauma. Mm -hmm. Like if anything, it's the thing that is like holding her back. Yeah. For sure. I don't think it it tries to say that she's empowered by it. I think James McAvoy's character tells her that she's special or pure of heart because of it. Which is which is what I find problematic. Maybe even yeah. you know, arguably at the same level as um I find James McAvoy's character. Maybe even more than his. Yeah, it's a frequent criticism that you see um, of him that he seems to stigmatize mental health mm. um, in in a very free well very frequently because I suppose like you know it, it's definitely there in um, in God what what's his I can't believe this has slipped my mind his first huge film that he made with Bruce Willis oh Unbreakable no the one oh my God that. oh my oh my God the Sixth Sense. <laughs> Yes, sorry. It's definitely there in the sixth. I cannot, can you imagine? We both what, I, I slipped there. I was like, retire. oh, unbreakable. This is like shameful that I forgot the sixth sense. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely there in the sixth sense, mm -hmm. Donnie Warburg's character. Um, it's there in signs with kind of like the way that like depression is treated in signs is a bit off. We have this, which isn't great. It's there in old again. Like, the, you know, the mentally, yeah. the person with a mental illness is like, evil essentially mm -hmm. and they're kind of given a lot of um yeah it, it, it's not the most progressive portrayal um and particularly i think um there's a lot of stigma that happens around even the kind of most manageable of mental illnesses um and i don't know maybe it's something that he'll grow out of it's it i it seemed like it was going um he was doing something different in servant Mm -hmm. Um, the make the kind of main uh, woman in that is um she's like suffering with kind of I suppose it's like a postnatal psychosis. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't want to diagnose a character, but um, having watched the most recent season 
<laughs> he doesn't he doesn't treat her great either so i don't know it just feels like maybe he's just got a quite shallow um way of handling that and he he sees mental illness as as a sort of more of a kind of convenient plot point like if you need to have something do something uh bad just give him a mental illness and and it'll be fine so let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about how he portrays um, split personality disorder (DID) in this in this film because it's 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 tailored from it's telegraphed from the very, almost the beginning, and and then there's quite a lot of time spent with Kevin in therapy, and a lot of separate time spent with his therapist as well, explaining how she views DID working. Mm-hmm. So, what do you make of that? Of you know the dialing in on on this disorder i really liked it i don't know whether it's like i mean i actually think that the woman playing the therapist was absolutely fantastic i didn't Mm -hmm. i didn't hadn't really seen her in anything before but i think she had such a kind of um like a grandeur about her and like a wisdom about her like i thought that was a really like solid performance and as much as i can say that it was like really this is perhaps I don't know a huge amount about dissociative identity disorder. I know mm. that it's something that has been debated um, a lot I, um, as to how it manifests and why it manifests. Um, I'm saying this only because I've listened to a You're Wrong About episode about it, which was very interesting. Yes. Um, but I am not a mental health professional, so I'm not going to dig in. Um, the thing that I enjoyed, and I can appreciate that maybe this is not like brilliant politically mm-hmm. um but it's just acting with like a big capital a <laughs> like i yes. just think james mcavoy is so giving this his all and mm-hmm. has so developed each one each character so distinctly mm-hmm. that i think it was just like a really joy to see someone pulling this off i think there is i i understand where the criticism comes from and I do see it as problematic, and I don't know what it says about me that I find the portrayal of of Casey actually on rewatch to be more problematic. Maybe because it's just a more sellable form of trauma. But like DID has always been used as such a convenient excuse in thrillers and horror films. I mean, even from Psycho, you know, this idea of a split personality feels almost supernatural in nature, but also is rooted in a real life. Um, mental illness that people do suffer from, but they're they're by default always presented as a as a psychotic villain, you know, as someone who necessarily one of their personalities is going to be some sort of villain. And at the same time, this is where like the problematics and the campiness comes in. I get so much joy from watching James McAvoy act. <laughs> I just I think he's one of the best actors of his generation, and here like he's he sort of has that unhinged elements in him in the same way as Jake Gyllenhaal has and mm-hmm. as much as I appreciate them when they're being very understated and thoughtful and you know taking their role seriously but fully embedded in the world in which the film takes place they also take that to a completely deranged level so if they're in a film that is not understated and serious they go f- like full, they dial up to like 12. 
And yeah. I appreciate that as a viewer because it's a lot of fun. And I can imagine that it's also a lot of fun for them to play. Yeah, I mean, it, it to me almost felt like um, this is m- that he must be someone that spent a lot of time on the stage. It this felt like very like kind of sub the, a sort of level of acting skills that seemed straight from the theater where, you know, maybe one night in some sort of experimental production, you were playing six different characters and you had to like switch roles. Cause I, I mean, I love plays like that. I love like experimental theater and just like, let's like explore the potential of this medium. Mm -hmm. And it just also felt that like, as much as this is kind of like B movie, I guess what I like about it generally, and that comes from like the literally the camera work to the performances, but particularly James McAvoy, as it's just like we're going to take something that is kind of B movie level trashy, and we're just going to take it so seriously. We're mm-hmm. going to like mm-hmm. do it. We're going to do it with like the utmost craftsmanship. So what do you? Let's talk about his performance in particular. And there's a few scenes in here that I really hope you bring up, where. It's just a, a kaleidoscope of characters. I know in the in the film, he's meant to have 24 personalities. That's including the Beast. But he, we only really see eight of them on screen. So what do you make of James McAvoy playing eight different characters? We, oh, yeah. No, I, I, I... So we've kind of got our two evil characters, really, mm-hmm. of the 24. There's um, Dennis, who's sort of the... Kind of the psychopath, creepy person who likes to be... Um, with uh, who's kind of got a fixation on teenage girls, but then I think so much scarier is Patricia, which mm-hmm. who does I think is I think there is a little bit of a psycho Mrs. Bates tribute <laughs> with her <laughs> for sure. Um, but then, like I think the thing that I found like most impressive in terms of like James McAvoy's um, performance is when he is being Dennis pretending to be. Um, Kevin. Barry. Oh, so, Barry. Yes, sorry. yes, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Barry. Yeah. So Barry is the kind of camp fashion obsessed. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, designer who I think is generally the person. I think I call it is like in the light, but like so there's mm-hmm. someone who's very often in charge. But there are scenes with the psychiatrist where she is. Uh, it is. It is Dennis, but he's pretending to be Barry. Mm-hmm. But she is kind of deducing from like tiny ticks that he's not entirely pulling off that performance. But you can, it's so insane, it's so intense that you can actually tell that it's Dennis pretending to be Barry, and you can get mm-hmm. that entirely from James McAvoy's performance. And especially like you know that scene where it's towards the end when I think they're all the personalities are sort of fighting for their time. And it's just a close up on on McAvoy's face, and he sort of wrote like Rolodexes his way through all these characters, and all these individual, you know, defining traits that we've seen from them. But it's yeah. just all in his face. It's like almost it's it's not an, a one take, but there's very few cuts, and you just see him transform with just very subtle facial movements. It's. Yeah. It- it really is very impressive. And I love the kind of level of detail that there seems to be in even the ones that you only see a little glimpse of. Mm-hmm. I think there's one called Jade, who they said, Jade is the one with diabetes. I was like, okay, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what do you make? And there's of- a moment where the original Kevin uh-huh. comes back, realizing that he has not been in charge of his body for, I think it's two years. 
And like that devastation that he feels was like really I found that quite a like moving moment. And it reminded me very much of the uh one of the I think one of the saddest moments in a in a horror film that I've seen in mm-hmm. Get Out, where um the gardener for a second gets his body back and so he immediately kills himself. Oh, yes. And that I, I think about that all the time and like the the horror of like what that character's been through. Mm. Really need, need to kind of separate my <laughs> my film watching life from my personal life because, uh, a little bit more because I, it is weird. I'm walking around, you know, being like, oh my God, that gardener, what he must have gone through. <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh, poor Kevin, like having, coming back, um, being having been out of his body for two years. Like, I love like when a film just has like a tiny moment of just like unspeakable darkness. Mm-hmm. And speaking about darkness, then what do you think specifically about the beast? Because for talking about the subtle physicality, well, subtle might not be the right word. The physicality of his <laughs> performance, um, the amount that he does with just his shoulders as the beast, I found mm. to be um, troubling. Yeah, and it, it really did. F- feel like um like a radical transformation and then Mm -hmm. and i kind of remembered it as a radical transformation that they kind of maybe done stuff with like prosthetics and watching it again i'm not sure that they did i actually think it it might just be mostly performance that he just seems like a larger more menacing presence Hmm. there is yeah it sorry go ahead so what do you think that he's um do you think that they've they've actually like physically transformed him in that moment? I think that the thing that I like the most about the beast is that it is just it's the same man, it's the same body, he but it's all about the way that he moves himself and sort of makes specific choices of how to like hunch his shoulders or flex mm. certain muscles to make himself seem so much bigger and just constantly in tension like there's moments when all of his veins are popping and that just makes him feel so much bigger than he actually is and it's just it's just control like the 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 elements are still all the same but it's just what he's doing like tiny tiny choices tiny tiny movements just the breathing and the way that his jaw is like clenched and and tense all the time i do like there is like an element of this is too funny and too camp when he starts climbing up the walls and all I could think about was like the calisthenics TikToks where it's just dudes doing <laughs> <laughs> climbing up walls, hanging on by their fingertips because their core strength is so high. I'm like, okay, show off. But <laughs> it's not menacing <laughs> to me. It's just funny. Oh my God, that would have been, if they were making this now, the t- promotional TikTok series that they could have gotten McAvoy to do would have been so much fun. I mean, I am excited for at some point for TikTok to rediscover this film and lose their collective shit over it because sometimes they do that with random films. Like they just got really obsessed with Megan is Missing. So why not get obsessed (laughs) with Split? Yeah, (laughs) just for no reason. My uh, my TikTok algorithm has clearly not not figured itself out because I would have liked to have seen that. (laughs) But, um, what do you what do you think of the beast as like the big monster? 
of this. I mean, just like here, you um, it is, it's it is. I have to come up with a better word than insane, particularly <laughs> given given the context. It is wild that when you think of that, it's the same man who is Hedwig. Mm-hmm. That is like who genuinely does feel like a child, mm-hmm. and then going into this sort of like menacing animalistic kind of creature, who, yeah, who who does who does seem I suppose because like this is supposed to be like kind of a pared down super villain, but like he feels more like a horror monster to me than like your regular kind of super villain that you would have that you would have had um in the same way that Heath Ledger's Joker did to me as well Mm -hmm. and I think maybe in sort of grounding them a little bit or making them a little less um fantastical they actually managed to do something a lot scarier Mm. no I I agree but um we we don't have to talk about glass kind of um too much but how do you think Kevin and I guess you know all his personalities the beast specifically kind of work within this grounded superhero reality and especially you know because of the the reveal that it is, that this is in fact a sequel to Unbreakable oh what a great twist that is oh my god I, I mean in the uh, cinema I actually screamed oh me too I mean I screamed <laughs> even it, like re-watching this film this morning I was like ah! I knew it was coming, but it's great. I love it so much. <laughs> I like that was such a oh, I, okay. Like fuck my question. Let's talk about the reveal. Like tell me about the moment <laughs> when the reveal came. What do you remember? Well, I ju- I mean I I I just remember feeling that like this is why this is what a twist should be. Where unlike so many films where you have a twist that like feels like a little bit of a betrayal and it mm-hmm. can be like a bit of a shock and a, and a and a bit of a feeling that like what you've seen before has has been tricking you mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is just like a kind of delightful extra layer of context on everything that reframes everything in like such a fun way and it's just that kind of rug pull of like haha you thought you were watching t- one type of movie and you're watching a completely different type of one and mm-hmm. oh, i just absolutely loved it and particularly like with the news with Bruce Willis and it's like so sad to hear that like he's so unwell now yeah. like it's just a little thrill in this moment to kind of you know that he's unveiled like such a kind of jewel mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and like he's got and, and you know it, it's horrible to see that like because of his health and he became like a butt of a joke in many ways and like you know fuck the Razzies for doing that with their like our worst Bruce Willis performance mm-hmm. category mm-hmm. um but it, it's kind of nice to see him on that movie star pedestal where they kind of you know present him as like they pull the curtain back on like look at this like treasure of like a character <laughs> and it's so like lovingly done as well mm-hmm. um and it, yeah I, it's just one of those uh, things that we talked about with like how he's got such a great command of the form that mm-hmm. even like the the tension the way that there is that slow movement of the camera through the diner and then you see kind of emerges out from behind those two women it's just it's freaking delicious oh god it's the right word it's just like you kind of know because the music starts playing and the camera starts moving so slowly up to him and like you just you just feel it you just feel like 
it's going to be him, but it would make no sense. And then when he finally just arrives and just with it, this is how much Bruce Willis is a fucking movie star. Just with a single tilt of his head, I'm just, I'm, I'm gone. I'm done for. I'm like, yes, I've been waiting. I've been waiting for 10 years for this. <laughs> Every single time I've watched this film, I rewatched it this morning before I recording. And I was like, I, I can't, I know it's coming. And yet I'm already <laughs> sort of trembling with anticipation. Like, I love it. Just show me the tilt, Bruce. And <laughs> yes, I think um, as much as we all kind of, you know, I think, you know, I'm certainly guilty of like making fun of some of the, the later Bruce Willis films, but like you just, when you get these, these big movie stars, these huge screen presences, even for a tiny sliver of a moment on screen. God damn it, it works so well. And I remember being at a at like a press screening of the film at that time, and obviously you're just like, oh, it's just it's James McAvoy. That's the whole selling point. And then when that happened, I just I could not breathe. I think the entire screening room just stopped breathing. It was just such a moment. I know, and like the confidence of it all, that everybody's yes. going to exactly remember this character from 10 years ago. <laughs> also, because um, Unbreakable is a did, fucking you awesome did, movie. <laughs> Unbreakable's great. Yeah. And I know that Glass is not a, technically a good film, but <laughs> you know how people say that M. Night does not have a good sense of humour? I say building up a sort of cinematic universe around superheroes only to completely destroy it in one of the least <laughs> cinematic deaths i've ever seen is one of the funniest fucking things i've seen in my entire life please elaborate on that <laughs> i'm sorry that is some king shit as they say as the kids say as the kids say it is the exact opposite of Morbius, <laughs> like, which is just trying to set up more, more you know, artistically bankrupt like bullshit sequels and try and squeeze every penny out of like your IP as possible. No, he went the exact other route, which is not only hilarious, but is kind of all, everything that we need in filmmaking nowadays it, it's got integrity it's got like and instead he went off and you know he's just like no i'm not gonna make a big superhero franchise i'm gonna make like weird films about people getting old on a beach which also great movie i will defend old with my dying breath hey i loved old i know right yeah um, you know again that's a gorgeous gorgeous film and you know there's stuff that I will defend when it comes from M. Night, and I'm mm -hmm. not sure why, which I would not love for other people. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I think it's so wonderful how he is, like, getting his daughters to direct, like, they're directing, they were, I think they were doing Second Unit on Old, and another one was doing, um, she did episodes of Servant and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, like, normally I'd be like, oh, nepotism, but, like, in this, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I... I will say, I mean, I think that's a you thing. I think that's a you're re recategorizing things because of yeah. your love of M Night. I definitely. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 I am under no illusions as to my biases. But it, as, but there's just something about the way that I felt he was kind of treated. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it kind of was slightly racist, if I'm honest. But like, there was also a kind of like we're gonna build someone up only to like 
tear them down oh 100 like, oh, you think you're the new spielberg and it's like no you guys said that about me <laughs> i'm kind of got a much weirder sensibility than that um and then like yeah and then there was just kind of they, i just thought they people were so fast to like try and like mock him and prove mm. that actually he wasn't really that great and i think he's great you know what i also think that like it's the reason why i wanted to Put this film in this series a i think it's actually a horror film it's not a thriller like this is this is full-on horror and agreed i think like it's one of those films where people shied away from calling it a horror film because it would i think a it's tied into those expectations placed on m9 and i don't i think it was wise to sort of shy away from them a little bit to expand the sort of audience and also temper expectations um, because I think that's you know one of the one of the complicated reasons why I think like people build him up and then everyone just expected the sixth sense and that's not you know you can't really force that on a on a filmmaker and the other thing is that because like people talk about it as a James McAvoy film they talk about it as a as a weird superhero film they talk uh, or you know villain origin story I guess. They talk about it as an M. Night Shyamalan film, but they never talk about it as a teenage girl film. And I always remember, mm-hmm. like, the biggest part of the half of this movie is spent with three teenage girls who have been kidnapped by a mentally unwell man, kept in a dungeon. Three teenage girls who, like, two of them don't like the third one. So there's, like, an interesting dynamic between them already going on. And then also, mm-hmm. they are one by one killed off. And the like half of the movie is them trying to escape and failing, and there was so much tension between them and between them and their like surroundings. Yeah, it is. It is funny how kind of um, shallow the 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 the, the other two girls are, are. They're not given much to do, are they? In retrospect, no, not really. I mean, I think Anya Taylor Joy has just got like a kind of movie star presence straight out of the gate mm-hmm. from um, the Vavitch, as I will insist on calling it. <laughs> the Vitch. The Vavitch. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I, I think part of that is like physical because she does just have like such giant eyes and this like strange ethereal quality literally naturally to her face and like the mm-hmm. fact that she can act on top of that seems almost like unfair. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they, he, he really does not give the other two much to do. I mean, I do like that they're not kind of like completely two-dimensional shallow like tropes of like, oh, you know, like the bitchy high school girl. And like mm-hmm. they do have like a level of human empathy towards Casey even from the beginning, even if they find her like strange and unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we spend more time with you know, the interiority of Hedwig than we do on either of them. Yeah, we do. I mean, the other teenage girls don't really feel... Uh, they are much more props than Casey is. Like, it does... It's basically, how much longer do we need to have them until mm-hmm. we're just left with Casey and Kevin and his several personalities. But to round yeah, off... Like cannon fodder. Like, they're just yes. there to be hurt (laughs) exactly although thankfully we are kind of spared quite a quite a lot of that like the dread is there the suspense is there we know what's happened but 
what kind of spared some of the the violence, which I also think is one of the reasons why Kevin is both more terrifying but also more sympathetic at the same time. We don't actually see him hurt anyone. Yeah, and but I like that it acknowledges like that threat of sexual violence without ever kind of showing it to us. Mm-hmm. Like it is, we know that Dennis has got um, a sort of dark, um, some kind of dark sexual desires, particularly aimed at teenage girls. We do have, yes. hints, and of course, you know there is what happens to Casey um, with the abuse. Mm-hmm. But I think M Night is wise to know that you can actually explore that without showing it mm-hmm. like yeah and that is a kind of something that is very sad about young womanhood that there is a kind of omnipresence of like you know sexual threat in like many of your interactions with with men it's just it, it's just something that's kind of on the cards i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and like that sort of and yeah, and I know. I think that they, the teenage girls, do know that, like, the moment that they're kidnapped, like that, that is likely. Yes. Um. Yeah, which is horrible and awful. But yeah, that's what I mean. It's one of the reasons I think this is a horror film. I think because mm-hmm. it's genuinely scary in that way. So before we we wrap up this episode, I wanted to ask you kind of the. I connected these two films because of the um, because of the way that they both tap you know work within larger franchises, I guess you know mini franchises, but without resting on those laurels too much. I mean, Evil Dead obviously is kind of yes doing that a lot more, but the connection with the universes is, is very different. It's not as as straight up as it as it could be. And and also because of the fact that both Casey and Mia are are troubled in different ways and yeah. troubled and resilient in different ways. So having rewatched them for this and and spoken about them for for over an hour, what um what do you make kind of on rewatch of how these films connect together? Interesting. I didn't. I hadn't really. I kind of just assumed you'd put them together because they're similar in time. But yeah, no, there are some overlapping <laughs> themes. Like, but no, I should have known that, you know, you being like the consummate programmer would like, <laughs> like, are able to sort of curate these things. I don't um, fuck around with my double bills, Slayer. I do not fuck you around. You don't, you don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, it's, well, I suppose, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I far prefer Split to mm-hmm. Evil Dead. And I wonder whether that is because um, as much as I do think um, there is, uh, they both fundamentally are portray have women, young women who are kind of recovering from trauma, then having new challenges brought their way, shall we say, <laughs> new mm-hmm. demons to fight. But neither of them like Rick ever in their performances, both Jane Levy and Anya Taylor Joy ever sort of fully like let go of the kind of trauma that they, that they already have. So I think what I've liked very much in both of these is like that it is not a case of um, something bad happens to you and that you're fixed. 
And I don't, and I think both actresses understood that very well. Mm -hmm. I think both filmmakers knew, knew that as well. So as much as there are regressive elements in like both films with like the use of sexual violence and the use of like mental health and like all of those things, I do think that that is, um, still admirable and probably why these are films that like I said at the beginning like these are comforting rewatches to me and I feel like I I I I feel kind of like nostalgically fond of both of them I think that's a I think that's a cute note to end on unless you have anything else to add about either evil dead or split uh just that um I hope that M. Night and you know we talked recently like with the Northmen and stuff and we mm -hmm. talk about how like oh we need this to do well at the box office so we get more of these like very distinct decent budget films that show that they can make money and they make more of them and I think nobody is doing more for that cause than M. Night because his films make a hell of a lot of money and they are always very distinctly him so I'm very grateful to him <laughs> existing in the universe I appreciate I appreciate this intense devotion to M. Night Shyamalan from you, Layla. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, to be honest. I think it kind of stuck <laughs> up on me. It honestly might have happened in the twist at the end of Split, because I've not known a joy like it. <laughs> I feel like in that, like, yeah, Sixth Sense was great. I enjoyed Signs, aside from the ending. I enjoyed, like, all of this. And I think, actually, it was just that Bruce Willis in a diner, and I was just like, I will follow you to the ends of the earth, M. Night. <laughs> You know what? That that tracks. And if that is your M. Night origin story, then I, I respect it immensely because that scene is perfect. <laughs> um, Leila, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. And I know you do a lot of things. So where can people find more of your work online if they want to listen to more? Ooh, uh, yeah, they are. I'm pretty much post everything that I do, uh, which is my Twitter, Leila underscore Latif. Um, if you read the new issue of Total Film, I've got a lot in that, um, talking about missing movies and the all of the different films that have uh, been lost in various different ways, um, and also talking to some people about the film Pleasure, um, the director and the stars of that movie, which is an amazing film about a young Swedish girl trying to become a porn star. Read that, but also definitely watch that film. And I am taking over as the host of Truth in Movies, so you can... Also, listen to me on that podcast. I think from next week. Lovely. Thanks so much again. <laughs> <laughs>